1: Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you this week from Connecticut the USA. Now, over the past few weeks, America has seen a spate of merger deals among U.S. regional banks wanting to get bigger to take on the big four players, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. Huntington Bank shares and TCF Financial last week said they planned to merge, creating a bank with $117 billion of loans and $134 billion of deposits. That followed a month before when PNC Financial agreed to buy the U.S. business of Spanish lender BBVA for $11.6 billion in cash. This urge to merge among American banking's second tier is likely to continue as super low interest rates make it harder for lenders to thrive. The cost of digitization of finance rises. Small and medium-sized businesses continue to grapple with the COVID-19 fallout and regulators too encourage more competition in the industry. So I was glad to chat through some of these issues with Bruce song. The chief executive of America's 15th or so largest bank, Citizens Financial. Citizens, based in the US Northeast, has a $15 billion market cap and $180 billion of assets, making it potentially an important player in the next round of consolidation. Give a listen to my chat with Bruce. Great to see you, Bruce. Uh, you know, this is uh, now, it's almost been, what? almost nine i guess nine months that you've been running uh, one of the largest regional banks i mean it's a 180 billion dollar bank um, in uh, large parts of the united states northeast in particular what how is this what has been the experience like running a bank during what you know has been sort of like a historic pandemic
2: well it's uh, certainly been a challenging year and a, a year like no other that we've seen before but uh, you know, I think you learn certain lessons over your career to expect the unexpected, and uh, you know you build a strong team, and then you uh, assess the situation and uh, and basically deal with it. So, uh, in the early days, uh, clearly we uh, saw the pandemic starting to spike and the associated lockdowns and. Uh, recognized that that was going to have a significant impact on corporate customers, uh, small businesses, individuals. Uh, We saw the stimulus come through. And so what the bank really had to do was rally around its customers and making sure that we could take good care of customers. Uh, We worked with our corporate customers to make sure they were going to have enough liquidity. uh, And if they needed changes in their loan agreements, that uh, we could affect that for them. Uh, Small businesses, the government uh, uh, put together a PPP program, uh, which uh, made loans to small businesses on very, very favorable terms that ultimately would be forgiven as a grant. Uh, We had to gear up to uh, handle the demand for that, which ended up uh, we made 50,000 loans in a matter of weeks. Uh, we went from 40 people to 1,500 people uh, and uh, did some great uh, technology work to be able to automate the application process and then uh, the, the throughput to the SBA to get the loans approved. Uh, but net net, that was $5 billion of loans. I think we positively impacted over 500,000 jobs. Uh, so that was really important. And then on the individual were there stuff, any
1: glitches to that? I mean, we heard at the time, you know, there were certain, I don't know, things that were going on. Yeah, it
2: was very, very difficult. Uh, the, the technology really wasn't built for that amount of volume and that rapid turnaround on the part of the SBA, but I'd say the banking industry really distinguished themselves in figuring out ways to get that done uh, through a combination of the uh, uh, sneaker brigade plus uh, getting their best technologies, the technologists working on it. Um, And then for individuals, we actually uh, affected a broad forbearance program to try to uh, look at people that were impacted and give them the opportunity uh, to defer uh, interest and principal payments until they were back on their feet. Uh, And so there was a huge focus there really on just making sure customers knew we had their back and that we could get help get them through this period. Uh, We also had to concern ourselves with our colleagues to make sure they were safe. We were deemed an essential business, so we kept our branches open, uh, had some restrictions around that to make sure the colleagues were safe. Um, And then also look out for our communities. We had a number of grant programs where we actually awarded money to small businesses. And then when uh, the racial uh, and social injustice issues spiked up, we put together a program there uh, to address some of those needs uh, so I'd say the first half of the pandemic period was really uh, just dealing with the challenges. Um, and then as we kind of, that became the new norm, we were able to step back and think strategically about what was changing and uh, how was banking changing? What was our, our customers were now rapidly advancing on digitization effectively using our digital channels. Uh, right. what, did that, what did that portend for the future? How did that how did our strategy need to evolve uh, to go faster on digitalization for the company? Um, and so we did a complete refresh of our strategy. By the time we got to September and share let's, that, let's, yeah, I
1: want to hear. Like, so when you think about a lot of the thing, the, the things that people talk about as a result of the of the pandemic was a really a sort of acceleration of existing trends. So right. if you look at digitalization. Um, you know, people not wanting to go to bank branches, people, including people who have been holdouts, say to digital, right, Right. or still wanted to felt they had to deposit that check rather than take a picture of it. I mean, how is that, how how does that manifest itself in your strategy and in action? What are you doing? Are you closing more branches, for instance, earlier than you might have?
2: Well, yeah, so I'd say we've moved faster down the track by three to five years, Uh, and so Uh, all of a sudden, the need to make sure your digital tools are uh, really uh, kind of best in class, that you can keep up with non-banks and offer those great digital experiences, that you can sell through the digital channels, that your brand resonates with customers digitally. Uh, There's a big sea change in terms of how we interact with customers that we have to affect. Uh, And the second thing is that we also need to focus on end-to-end digitization we call it so how do we streamline our cumbersome processes in the bank how do we offer more self-service for customers so they have those great digital experiences uh, they they they're faster they they have less friction uh, and uh, ultimately we can take out costs and then we can reinvest those savings back into additional products and services for the customers so uh, part of that you're right is that we don't need as many branches we're watching foot traffic Uh, Drop, but having said that, there still are you know our customers still like to have all channels available to them. Uh, So it's a question of degree. How do you what do you what's what's the repurposed branch used for? It's more used for advice and face-to-face meetings with specialists. It's not needed for transactions processing the way it was in the past. So you need to refashion the branches to make them. Uh, nicer with some office space and meeting space so that folks can go in, set up an appointment, meet with their banker, get the advice they need, and then meanwhile, they can use all these new channels. Uh, in order to affect uh, easy transactions. So uh, yeah. we're along that journey.'ve we've, we've actually probably over the last five years closed about 15% of our branches. I think we can uh, accelerate that uh, a little bit more. But certainly the branch has a role uh, in banking, and so you won't see them uh, go extinct. Uh, no. you know, for, for decades, I think yeah. so. And,
1: and when you think about, what about the balance sheet? If I look at from what I could tell, it looked like you added about 15 billion of assets in the sort of yeah, so,
2: versus so the year before. Sure, so there were a couple of things. So the PPP loans themselves were about 5 billion, but then we saw line draws spike up from our commercial customers. So the first thing, uh, when they were worried about the future, they're like, they want to hoard cash. They want to, you know, draw down on those lines and make sure they have plenty of cash if they don't see their revenues coming in and the revenue flows been interrupted. So we had a big spike out, probably about 10 billion uh, on those uh, commercial uh, line draws. And then interestingly, as the stimulus from the Fed and the federal government played out um, and markets normalized and many of those uh, companies, those corporates could go to market and raise money in the bond market, uh, they didn't need to have that cash from the line draws, and so that's all been repaid. We're actually, interestingly, mm-hmm. our our line utilization had been 34, 35 percent historically. It's actually down to about 33 percent now. So, so all of that <laughs> excess balance sheet demand uh, we've seen uh, uh, reduce. Uh, but we still have the most of those PPP loans are still on the books because the SBA has been a little slow in terms of uh, the forgiveness process.
1: Right, right, right. And what, what about what else has changed with your strategy? So you, you're accelerating certain things, digitalization, things like that. What else? I mean, you know, you now have interest rates at you know basically nothing. Yeah. Um, that's got to be uh, that doesn't help the the, uh, the interest income part of the business, right? Um, what, what? How does how does that change your thinking about what you might need to do?
2: Yeah. Well, we've been on a, a journey uh, for some time to build out our suite of products, uh, which includes, uh, we've made a mortgage acquisition, we've made a wealth acquisition, we've made three M&A boutique acquisitions, and we've invested in scaling up our commercial bank, both in terms of coverage and product capabilities. And so I think, you know, what we're looking to do, and we've done successfully this year, is to deepen our relationships with our customers and be able to do more for those customers. And a lot of that uh, generates fee revenues. And so that's a natural offset to some of the pressure from low rate environment on your spread income is to, if you're successful in having a full suite of product capability, and you can deliver that to your customers, then you're going to have growth in fee revenues. So we'll continue to look at doing that. Uh, we call that deepening. Uh, we also, on our commercial uh, bank, we've we've looked at uh, investing in industry verticals. So we have more uh, and deeper expertise uh, that we can bring to customers to, I think ultimately gain market share is the goal, uh, and and uh, have some great relationships where we have a a big share of wallet with those corporates, uh, and so we've moved ahead there as well. Uh, we've we've set up six industry six more industry verticals uh, for launch into 2021, and we think uh, that'll have a, a very positive effect in terms of. Uh, how we cover those companies and the amount of revenues we can generate. and then I mean, it's not often
1: that you see a regional bank uh, buying, you know, going into the M&A or sort of boutique uh, investment banking kind of business, but but maybe elaborate a little bit. You said you bought a couple, I think one was related to restaurants. Is that right? I mean, what, what is, you know, how, how should one think of a, you know, a bank of your size versus, say, a J.P. Morgan, of course, which we know does all the investment banking. Um, well, I know, mean,
2: philosophy. it's really a, a, a kind of where do you focus in terms of the size of companies that you're covering. So, uh, Citizens focuses on middle market companies and mid corporates. Uh, middle market companies have 25 to 500 in revenues. Mid corporates 500 to say 3 billion, and you know the big mega banks sometimes come down into mid-corporate space, um, not, don't usually go into the middle market space. So those businesses have needs and oftentimes they, they uh, take them independently from, for example, M&A boutiques. So we wanna be able to help them if they wanna grow their business and do it through acquisitions, we wanna be able to offer that advice. If they like the pricing, the valuations in the marketplace and they don't have a succession plan, they wanna sell their business, we wanna be there to capture that trade as well. Uh, We also have a deep, uh, you know, probably relationship with 50 middle market sponsors, PE uh, investors, and having an ability to show them flow of companies that are for sale so they can put money to work uh, has been great for us. Uh, the, The PE firms really appreciate that. And then we also, in addition to sometimes making a fee on the sale of the business, we make fees on the financing side when the buyer ends up buying those businesses and then we stay the banker to the company going forward. So uh, you know, we've had, I think some some very good success there by what we refer to as thought leadership, really bringing a great level of coverage and value added ideas to those uh, commercial customers that the big guys can't do. They can do that for bigger companies but they don't do it as effectively when you get down into the middle market and the mid corporate space.
1: Right, so, right. the, other, the, was, other, the
2: other, was, other thing that I was gonna mention is, uh, you know, we, we've pushed ahead with a national digital bank called Citizens Access. Uh, and we've, we've garnered about 6 billion in deposits uh, with this thing up and running for a couple of years. We also, as a consumer bank, have uh, national uh, consumer l- uh, lending operations around auto, around student, around mortgage, et cetera. And so what we're thinking is we should pull this all together uh, and and be able to offer a great digital experience across the full product set beyond just the savings vehicle that really works well, the citizen's access. Can we link it to some of the other lending products we have and go after a targeted customer base uh, being really mass affluent customers, kind of younger professional customers who are in need of advice and in kind of going through their life's journey where they have a lot of needs. We think that's a very attractive uh, market segment for us to focus on. So so that's another thing that we'll be uh, pushing forward as we uh, head into 2021.
1: I mean, what is your sense of the economy or the sort of the balance sheet balance sheet of, of your clients? I mean, maybe we can talk I mean, if the economy, what's your, what's your view generally about at least in the in the economy, the, the the part of parts of America where you operate, and then I guess sort of the corollary to that is, you know, how's the consumer doing, and how are your business customers doing? Sure.
2: Uh, well, uh, starting out, I'd say, look, the economy has bounced back uh, reasonably quickly, uh, and uh, I think. You know, part of that is the incredible amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've had. I think we've gotten smarter with lockdowns. Uh, People have gotten smarter about the need to take individual precautions. And so even with coronavirus cases spiking, we're still seeing good economic performance, even though it's maybe slowing uh, a little bit from where the initial stages of recovery. Um, I think, you know, when you look out into next year, We'd probably get another fiscal stimulus package. The Fed's mm-hmm. going to stay very loose on their monetary policy. You've got some great progress on the health front. So we're bullish on a good, uh, solid recovery in 2021. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that the challenges right now are the stimulus uh, from the summer is uh, ebbing at this point, and there's still industries that are suffering, and there's still individuals who work in those industries who are suffering, who need another bout of help, if you will. Right. I'm hopeful uh, now that we have the election out of the way that uh, the politicians can agree something to to help those people in those industries that are most suffering. Uh, It's going to get tough in the colder months, for example, for restaurants to kind of maintain uh, some level of profitability until the vaccines kick in. So uh, we're watching that very carefully. But I'd say broadly, that's a fairly narrow slice of our consumer customer base. In general, our credit quality is uh, at all time uh, highs. There's a lot of that stimulus has left people flush and they've saved the cash. And so I think generally consumers are in good shape Uh, and corporates as well. The bigger companies have more diverse revenue streams. They have more access to liquidity and funding. Uh, So they seem to be doing well. And again, it's really just those industries, uh, the, the companies in industries most affected by the lockdowns, you have to look after and make sure they're uh, able to, to make it
1: through. Do you do, what's your view on defaults? I mean, are we going to see a, a, a bit of a higher, an uptick next year relative to what we saw in previous years or sort of the average, as it were?
2: Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I think we'll see peak charge-offs uh, probably hit in the middle of next year. Uh, on the consumer side, the impact is delayed this year because of forbearance. And so I think you'll see uh, some of the uh, folks uh, who come out of forbearance, you'll have some charge-off activity on that through the middle of the year. Uh, I think similarly in corporates, uh, folks have made it through, but you can see some folks operating in the tough industries are wobbling a little bit. You'll see some charge-offs, but I think that'll also peak around the middle of the year. So uh, when you look at the net charge-off assumptions today, they're a lot more moderate than what the market assumed uh, back in March when we first went into the, uh, the, the, the hell of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Uh, you know, Banks basically uh, were trading at, uh, at spit. They were trading well below tangible book value because people thought we were going to have a, pile, a huge pile of bad loans. Uh, we will have some charge-offs I'm sure, but it's going to be a lot less than anybody assumed. Hence, you've seen uh, bank stock prices recover quite markedly from the lows back in April.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't wonder what you think about consolidation. I mean, we've we've seen a couple of what they call in-market deals. You saw BBVA selling its U.S. business to PNC. We certainly see we've seen it in Europe. You know, the the, the idea of of crunching businesses together, particularly at a time when you have you know, low or no interest rates ahead of you. Um, growth is you know, m- middling um, and you can take out large you know, chunks of costs and, and deal with these issues you talked about, whether it's closing branches and rapidly moving to digitalization and funding all that research and development and that needs to be done to, to create digital platforms. What do you got, where, what, what role will citizens play in the consolidation game?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, broadly, I think, you know, there's there's likely to be a pickup in consolidation. I agree with your premise. Uh, There are pressures on banks, particularly the smaller regionals and on the community banks to keep up uh, with the technology spend. And a lot of the moving to digital business models is gonna be taxing. Uh, on many companies. And then you have this collapse of spread income with a, with a kind of low interest rates and a flat yield curve puts further pressure on many companies. Uh, typically you haven't seen deals uh, really start to trigger until you get to peak charge off. So I was thinking, you know, we probably wouldn't see a lot of deals until the middle of next year. Uh, but now we've seen the CIT First Citizens deal followed by the PST BBVA deal uh, which may be a sign that uh, you know the, 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 the charge-off picture is improving, that you can actually go out and do diligence on the seller's balance sheet with some confidence. Uh, historically, you wouldn't do that because you wouldn't really know what was going to happen to the, to the credit uh, situation. But uh, I guess there's an, an ability to go out and do the diligence, make the calls, and then get on with it. So uh, I think we could be surprised. I think we could see more transactions follow given some of these pressures uh, as early as uh, the beginning of next year. Uh, I think from our standpoint, we have uh, done a good job of focusing on just uh, building a strong bank, uh, positioning it well for the future and doing these bolt-on fee-based acquisitions to uh, build out our product capabilities, as I mentioned earlier, Um, and whether we actually play in that consolidation game, uh, I think we'd have to be very disciplined about uh, if we if we see a situation, we see an institution that really fits well, uh, that can be priced attractively. Uh, yeah, we might we might take a look, but I think at this point, our focus still is to really just make sure the bank gets on with its digital agenda, that we get on with this uh, national consumer strategy that we have, uh, and. Uh, you know, not get overly distracted with a big transaction. Uh, one of the risks of the banks that are engaging in these big transactions now, like uh, BB&T SunTrust forming Truist, is you spend an awful lot of focus and time and effort on bringing two massive banks together and all their technology infrastructure and you potentially could take your eye off the ball of how fast things are changing and how do you, you know, play offense and keep innovating and keep going digital. Uh, so uh, you have to balance that. I mean, if you see an opportunity, it's in a good geography, it brings some nice customers. Uh, that's attractive. But then, you know, what's the execution risk and do you, does it set you back a couple years on your offensive agenda if you go do something like that? So you have to think all that through and weigh that. Uh, when you when you make those uh, decisions,
1: yeah. Are you? I mean, I look at your stock price. You're trading at about one times your tangible book value, um, which is actually you know relatively, I mean, relatively in line with your return on on equity. Um, what does that make you a likely buyer, or does this suggest that that uh, yeah, or a seller? I mean, how did, how how do I read what the market? Well,
2: you know, I think we've uh, we we were in 2019. We had a 13% ROTCE, um, and so and our stock was you know trading in the low 40s. Uh, today we're trading you know 33, 34 dollars. So we haven't fully recovered, uh, and and obviously the pandemic and the impacts on uh, credit costs and uh, also the flat curve have I think brought the whole we're trading down in line with other banks it's not like we're trading disproportionately down in fact we've probably made up a little ground on a relative basis given our strong performance this year uh, so I, I think you know that's a that's a potential hindrance to doing deals you want your stock to get back to where you think it should be trading because if you're doing something that's sizable uh, you'd be you'd be issuing uh, stock as part of that mm. transaction so but, you know, again, it could be a relative game if it's a if you were doing an MOE, it's really, you know, where does your stock trade relative to someone else's stock? If you're doing an acquisition of a smaller regional, are you uh, satisfied that your stock is trading at its intrinsic value or do you need to wait for that to recover? The smaller deals that we've done, we've really done those for cash, including the right. mortgage business that we acquired. We've, we paid $500 million for that. Uh, that couldn't have been more timely and more impactful to us because, as you see, one of the hedges against low rates is mortgage activity kicks up, and there's a huge refi wave here. Uh, and so we've just made a, a fortune uh, in servicing all that mortgage originating and servicing all that mortgage volume. Um, and so uh, you know, we we can we can do smart deals. We can benefit uh, our shareholders, but. Uh, we'll keep the periscope out and look to see uh, what else is out there.
1: I mean, what is the when you look around at the competitive landscape? I mean, the United States is certainly you've got you've sort of the big three, if you will, in consumer banking: you know, the B of A, Wells, J P Morgan. Um, what? How hard? How important is it to consolidate to compete with those guys? Is that is that one of the the great sort of? Um, you know, drivers for that for what you're seeing in terms of consolidation.
2: Well, I think they, the 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 mega banks all like to talk about the advantages of scale and how much they spend on technology and how much they spend on their brand. Uh, quite honestly, we've competed against all of them for years in our major markets, and we've competed effectively. So, if you're doing a good job, focusing on your customers, taking care of your customers, and you're keeping up with the technology investments and the uh, uh, different products that you need to serve your customers well, uh, you can compete effectively. And there's no reason for your customers to look, even if a new bank uh, opens some branches in town uh, and does a lot of advertising, if you have a satisfied customer, uh, they're not going anywhere. So that's been our you know, secret for success is to really have a customer focused organization really uh, has our customers back uh, gives them advice on their life's journey is the trusted advisor uh, that's the formula for success uh, when we go nationally that's where you have to think about uh, you know, the big guys have a brand they have an ability to spend they can advertise in the super bowl or in a political debate or they can really get their name out there how do we use data uh, how do we uh, target customer segments that we think would uh, be open to our value proposition and do that more effectively than our peers and then some of the big banks. Uh, so it, it, it is a bit of a challenge, but if you're really good, you can be
1: successful. And how does, I'm just wondering how the new Biden administration um, might change or the, the regulatory environment might change. I mean, we had eight years of Obama during that time. We had the Dodd-Frank Act, which obviously toughened up um, uh, banking regulations. There was some talk about relaxing them a bit um, under the Trump administration. I think it was probably more um, signaling than it was any change. I mean, I'm, I imagine you didn't see your bank examiners from the Fed or the OCC coming in um, less frequently because they were surfing or something. but. Um, you know, what, what is your sense about the, the, how the environment might change as a result of the Biden administration? We don't yet have all of the, pic, the, the picture perfectly clear as to who, yeah. who's going to be running the various parts of the regulatory uh, um, um, regime, but what's your sense of it?
2: Yeah, look, I, I think the, uh, the reforms after the crisis were uh, necessary and generally appropriate. And so, you know, the focus on uh, prudential regulation, safety soundness, capital risk management, uh, we needed uh, uh, to do better there, uh, given the results of the, of the crisis last time. Uh, and then we needed to do better on our customer agenda and, uh, and really work for the customers and not uh, sometimes against our customers, which I think banking had a reputation for that. Uh, so those reforms I think have been good for the industry, we've made a lot of progress. I think we're running ourselves uh, with, with great uh, capital strength and risk management uh, focus. You can see coming through the recession, this time we came through in flying colors and we were part of the solution rather than part of the problem uh, in the great recession. I think most banks have a really good record on the a, on a, uh, consumer side. Uh, if you put wells to the side. Uh, And so uh, I think we've all improved our, our, our game there as well. Uh, The Democratic administration. So, so I agree with your premise. Things didn't change a whole lot. The pendulum swings a little too far sometimes. And so what the Republicans uh, did and in the, in the Senate bill 2155 kind of exempted smaller banks from some of the pain uh, that the big banks uh, need to suffer. Uh, And so Uh, We were a category four bank. We didn't have to do quite as much busy work as we did before. So that was a positive. So there were some uh, peace dividends that that came to the industry, but nothing all that dramatic. I actually think this new administration won't make dramatic changes because the framework actually works. It's been battle tested. Uh, I do think the Democrats will uh, have a more uh, forceful approach around consumer protection. uh, So we would expect to see that. I think they'll look harder at uh, mergers and getting banks getting bigger. Uh, I'd, I'd expect to see that. And then. do you do,
1: just on that point, do you think that there'll be, I mean, I wouldn't want to be a B of A, Wells, JP Morgan, maybe, um, but there is this idea of creating a few more competitive, larger banks, which might yeah. suit you, no?
2: Well, I, I do think there's, there's going to be mixed opinion on that. So, uh, you know, there'll be. I think some folks in the regulatory agencies who say that's a good thing to create uh, stronger competitors for the future Um, i do think though there's a knee-jerk reaction anytime banks get together they get hauled in uh, in front of congressional panels and it's bad banks are getting bigger Uh, they're not going to be as personal they're going to leave the communities behind there's this knee-jerk reaction uh, that you have to go through. And I think you'll see, you'll, you'll hear that voice get louder, I think. Um, uh, but I do think there still will be people in, uh, the, in, the, in the agencies who think, you know, this isn't so bad, this would be a strong competitor, and we should try to approve this. So we'll kind of see how that plays out. And then I think the last area is just that there'll be a big focus on uh, the diversity, equity and inclusion agendas of the banks, uh, to try to make sure that banks are are doing their part in what is seen as a societal need and i think we've all done a very good job on that but i think there'll be more pressure to step
1: it up and do even more yeah yeah that makes sense well look where are you now you're in connecticut stanford yes i am where did you spend the pandemic when we were the the lockdown
2: i've pretty much been here uh coming to the office and uh it's been a skeleton crew it's at the start and we're probably up to you know, maybe 25% occupancy at this point. Uh, So we're not, you know, we're inviting our office workers to come back. We're encouraging them. We've gone into the second phase, which is encouragement, but we're not jamming anybody and making it mandatory, which I think would be uh, a poor strategy. So uh, anyway, if we operate here at 25 to 30% until we get a vaccine, uh, it helps you kind of keep your culture and uh, keep people collaborating uh, to have some folks in, but uh, if other people feel that they can get the job done from home and they have been getting it done and uh, that works for them and they feel safer, that's okay too.
1: How in five years or three, let's say three years, how much more or less commercial real estate will your bank occupy?
2: That's a great question. Um, I'd say at the margin, we might be 10 to 15% less, Um, but you know, I think in general, I'm a I'm a fan of office settings. I think there's a reason there's so much uh, office commercial real estate is that's been an effective way for companies to organize and to operate, uh, and it stood the test of time. So, will there be more flexibility in work from home that you could come in three days and work from home two days, and so therefore you may have more uh, desk sharing and not uh, always come to the same location every day and have your kids pictures on your desk you might have to uh, have it in a cubby and then uh, set it up in a different desk uh, in, in, in a more flexible arrangement so i think you'll see some move towards that uh, but i don't think you'll see a wholesale reduction in companies office needs
1: well good well say hi to my state the constitution state David. all right I appreciate you spending time with us good luck with everything yes yeah, enjoyed the conversation thank you Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joiner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for the exchange, the views room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and on
0: Twitter at breakingviews and at Rob Wincox. Thanks for tuning in. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols.